0: G'day and welcome to the Dolby Anglican Podcast. My name is David and I'm one of the ministers at Dolby Anglican Parish. If you'd like to learn more about our church, visit anglicandolby.org.au. Today's sermon is the fifth sermon as part of our Promise Maker, Promise Keeper series, looking at God's promises in the Old Testament. And today's sermon focuses on Numbers 21, 4-9 and a covenant
1: obeying people. We hope you enjoy the sermon. The Lord be with you.
0: And also with you.
1: The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John. Chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. Glory Glory to you, you, Lord Lord Jesus Jesus Christ. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ.
0: Loving Lord God, we thank and praise you for your word to us. And Lord, sometimes your word is very difficult to understand. And so we pray that you would send your spirit into our hearts and lives so that we might hear your word, that we might obey it and live it out. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a snake bite. What started as a little scratch on your ankle starts to throb as the venom courses through your veins, up through your knee and into your groin. You lie on those searing hot rocks as your vision starts to blur and the pain becomes unbearable. You see the snake slithering back into the sand, but you can't identify it. All of a sudden, you see a blurry figure coming towards you. He says, I don't have any antivenom, and there are no doctors close by, but there is something that you can do. You need to obey me. You need to trust me right now. Do this. Would you do it? Would you listen? Would you obey? That is what the text that we're looking at today asks us. This is the question that one of the lesser-known parts of the Bible asks us. But strangely enough, it is connected very intimately with one of the best known parts of the Bible, John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life and so today as we read this really interesting story we read in Numbers 21.6 and I hope you have your Bibles and you can open up to Numbers 21 because that's where we're going to be focusing this morning, if you don't have a, uh, a real Bible. You can get your fake Bible on your phone or, or some sort of device. But I encourage you to open it up to Numbers 21, verse 6, where we read Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. Now, why would God do such a thing? And what does this say about God's promises? And what relevance it has for our lives today. Today, we're going to look at a snake on a pole, the sun on the cross, and we're going to think about what it means to be people who obey God. So let's look at the snake on a pole. As we dive into the story of the snake, we realize that this is a pivotal moment in the story of God's promises and God's people. In the beginning of the Bible, God calls a people to himself and reveals his character to them. The descendants of Abraham, who we looked at a couple of weeks ago, end up in slavery in Egypt. And so God in his grace and mercy breaks them out of Egypt and takes these freed slaves into the desert where he shows them more of his character. Last Sunday, Bishop Cam spoke about the Ten Commandments, which were given to the people of Israel while they were in the desert, while they were in the wilderness. Ten rules for life designed to help these ex-slaves understand and live out their freedom after God had graciously given it. Friends, grace always comes first, then obedience. But if the story of the Bible is a story of God's continued faithfulness to his promises and God's everlasting grace, it's also a story of human rebellion. You see, as soon as God brings the people out of slavery, they begin to what? They begin to grumble. We don't have enough water, they grumble. So God gives them water. We don't have enough food. They grumble. So God gives them bread, bread from heaven, manna, which tasted um, like wheat flakes and honey, apparently. Sounds pretty awesome. And then they get upset because they don't have any meat, and so God gives them quail. Yes, quail, (laughs) the poultry that they charge you $26 to eat in fancy restaurants in Brisbane. I don't even think they serve quail in restaurants in Dolby. So these Israelites get bread from heaven, water from, water in the desert, and then quail. And do they stop grumbling? No. When Moses, their leader, leaves them for five minutes to go and get the Ten Commandments, he comes back down, and what have they done? They've grumbled so much, they've built a golden calf, and are now worshipping that as the one who set them free from Egypt. When God, in His grace, brings them to the border of the country He wants to give them, they turn back in fear and grumble because they're afraid to trust His promises. And so for 40 years, the people mope around in the wilderness grumbling against God because they won't obey His promises. But finally, that grumbling generation dies out. And a new generation emerges that God will finally use to take hold of the promises he made to Abraham hundreds of years before. It's all going well in Numbers 21. The people have won a famous battle, one of their first battles on the way to the promised land. In Numbers 21.4, though, we read, they traveled along from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea, to go around Edom. But the people grew up impatient, and they spoke against the Lord. They spoke against God and Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. We detest this miserable quail. I remember when I was a little kid, um, my family uh, used to go very often to, to Paris. We were living in Africa at the time, and we would go to Paris uh, in order for my, my brother, who has Down syndrome, to receive good medical care. And, and so pretty much once a year we would go to Paris, which is, I don't know, who would like to go to Paris if I offered you a ticket right now? Yeah. <laughs> and so I remember um, one day mum came to me and and said, David, these holidays, we're going to Paris. And a little eight-year-old David, ungratefully grumbled, not Paris again. (laughs) (laughs) This is what the Israelites are doing. They're, They're finally on the road to the woods, the promised land, and they're saying, not Paris again, not quail again, not God's promises again. We detest this miserable food. They're not only grumbling though, they're trashing God and they're turning on their leader Moses. Accusing God of leading them out to die and rubbishing the water, bread and quail God's given them since they left Egypt. It's a point of mutiny and it looks like this generation is going to have to wait another 40 years for a crack at seeing God's promises realized. But then God does something unexpected. Anne was telling me this morning that um, she went to her cupboard the other day and opened the cupboard and out dropped a snake. (laughs) Something we deal with in Australia quite a bit. (laughs) And that's exactly what God sends. God sends a snake attack. And as the people writhe in pain and feel the consequences of generations of grumbling and ungratefulness, they come to Moses, the very guy they were getting ready to lynch, and say, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Far from being a curse, the snakes actually give the people the clarity to see their sin for what it is. Of their own admission They ask Moses to pray that the Lord would help. Of their own admission, they recognize that their grumbling against God was misplaced. And so God gives them a snake on a pole. Yes, this is the crazy thing Moses told the people to do. He makes a model of the very thing that hurt them and puts it on a pole. All the people have to do is look at the pole, and they are healed. Anyone who obeys the Lord and his servant Moses lived. Now, there's a quick application at this point uh, that we should appreciate, and it's the value of intercessors, people who pray for us. So often we're tempted to think that praying should be the last resort. Praying is the most useless thing I could possibly do. Let me do something more powerful than that, God. But actually, prayer is the most powerful thing we can do at all times. Moses prays for the people, and they live. So let's give thanks for the people who pray for us and let's commit to being people who pray for one another and for our community. The second thing we need to realize in this passage is how God works out his promises. Theologian Raymond Brown points out that this miracle cure is uniquely provided, totally undeserved, urgently necessary, widely available, personally appropriated, and immediately guaranteed. God's salvation always works this way. You see, friend, we're all dying. We've all been bitten by the serpent Satan. We all live under the curse of Eden. And God's salvation always comes in unexpected ways. God never saves us in a way where we can say, actually, it was, it was the therapeutic benefits of the snake on the pole that saved me. <laughs> um, actually, it was, it was me looking at the snake on the pole that I saved myself. <laughs> no, we can't say that. We can't save ourselves. And it's only when we realize that Jesus is the only source of life and wholeness that we can actually access God's salvation. Also, it is totally undeserved. We never deserve God's help. And as the curses against God echo around the desert, God is already saving the people who broke the first and third commandments. We always need God's salvation. Whether it's a snake bite, a test at school, or a problem at work, God is always ready to hear our urgent prayers. God's salvation is also widely available. Notice, it didn't matter what background you had. It didn't matter if you were morally good or bad. It didn't matter what you were dressed in or what you thought. All you had to do, everyone could look at this snake on a pole and live. All you had to do was obey God, no matter who you were, what you came from, or what you believed. God's salvation was freely available to all. God never leaves anyone out. Finally, the cure was immediately guaranteed. The Bible tells us that everyone who obeyed God's words lived. In God's promises, there is life guaranteed immediately. No matter who you are, God's salvation is the fulfillment of his promises. While at first glance it seems a bit strange, the story of the snake on the pole captures God's salvation beautifully and points us to the Son on the cross. Now many scholars today believe that this story of the snake on the pole is just a myth, a fable used to stop people from grumbling. Unfortunately, this line of thinking breaks down when you realize that Jesus saw this as an event that actually happened with deep spiritual significance. John 3.16, again, is one of the most famous verses. Can anyone say it? We'll say it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We know it. But before Jesus says these famous words, he refers to the snake on the pole. John 3:14 says, "Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life in him." Do you see the connection? Do you see the logic? Do you see where Jesus is going? It's a bit strange. But here Jesus shows us that the snake on the pole points us to the gravity of God's love. In John 3, Jesus is speaking with a man called Nicodemus, who can't understand Jesus. He just doesn't get him. He sees him performing miracles, and he knows he must come from God. But Jesus tells old Nick. That he's going to be lifted up on a pole, just as the snake was lifted up. And just as people lived after looking at the snake, so people will find everlasting life when they look at Jesus. Now, if your brain's hurting, it's okay. Nicodemus couldn't understand Jesus either, and he was one of the most religious people around. What Jesus is telling us here is that he is the fulfillment of God's promises. Jesus is the full disclosure of God's love. Jesus brings us unique, undeserved, necessary, free, personal, and immediately immediate salvation to all who look to him, to all who believe in him, to all who commit to obeying him. Nicodemus can't figure out whether he wants to join the pro-Jesus crowd or the grumbling against Jesus crowd. And Jesus lays it out for him. He says, one day, I'm going to be lifted up on the cross. And you can either look to me for salvation, or you can face the consequences of your rebellion against God forever. As the snake on the pole was a revelation of God's mercy... So Jesus' crucifixion will be a revelation of the fullness of God's love. John 3.17 is less famous than uh, John 3.16, but it's just as relevant. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You can imagine that in the wilderness, there were people who were so angry with Moses They so hated God that they refused. No, I won't look at your dumb snake on a pole. I refuse. This is exactly the choice before Nicodemus and the choice set before us today. Will we look to Jesus for life and hope and reconciliation? Or will we look away? One of the things that theologians point out about this episode in the wilderness is that it's the last time the people of Israel grumble against God in the wilderness. This is a pivotal moment where the people commit to being a covenant-obeying people. They don't just look at the snake on the pole and go, yeah, okay, I've looked at the snake on the pole, I'm going to go back to grumbling now. Instead, this is a formative event in their minds and hearts. And when Moses' successor, Joshua, leads the people to the brink of the promised land, he says, choose today whom you will serve. Choose today whom you will obey. Choose today who you will look for and look to. But as for me and my house, we will what? We will serve the Lord. this was the generation that obeyed God and eventually took the promised land. It's a defining moment as the people realizes the consequences of their rebellion and their desperate need for God. John 3 is a defining moment for Nicodemus, but it doesn't go so well. Nicodemus speaks with Jesus, God in the flesh, and there's no indication that he becomes a disciple. This is because the writer of his gospel, this gospel, the gospel of John, wants us to be Nicodemus. He wants to give us the choice and see it laid out in front of us. Do we choose to believe in God? Do we choose to trust in God? Do we choose to obey God? Or will we turn away? In the gospel of matthew we look at another person who looks to jesus he's a roman centurion one of those who helped crucify jesus we meet him in matthew 27 and he's just an ordinary bloke doing his gory job but as jesus breathes his last and he sees jesus raised up high on a pole he looks at this innocent man dying And says this, surely he was the son of God. Friends, Lent is about peeling away everything that keeps us from God so we can trust and obey Jesus as we look to the cross at Easter. In C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, is another grumbling character called Eustace. He's a selfish and spiteful bully who happens upon a stash of dragon's gold. He thinks this will solve all his problems and finally make him happy, and he idolizes the dragon's treasure. But soon, he becomes a dragon himself. He becomes what he worships. At first, this seems great, but he ends up lonely, tired and desperate, isolated, until finally he meets the God character, Aslan, and he begs Aslan for help. Aslan tells him he needs to take his skin off, and Eustace tries to scratch it off, but it's no use. Under each layer of skin is another layer of dragon skin. And so finally, Aslan says, you will have to let me take it off. And C.S. Lewis writes this. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked a scab off a sore place, it hurts like bilio, but it is such fun to see it coming away. Well, Aslan peeled off the beastly stuff, and there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me, and I didn't like that very much, for I was very tender underneath. But now that I would no skin, and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. Friends, following Jesus, believing in Jesus, looking to Jesus, is about letting Him peel off everything that keeps you away from Him until God helps you realize who you truly are, your true identity. Friends, we have images, idols, and all matter of distractions around us every day. But I encourage you today to remember that in this time of Lent, we need to look away from the grumbling, away from the distractions, and fix our eyes on Jesus that we might live. You remember that beautiful hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus... Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. This Lent, this Easter, may we look to Jesus, may we find life in his name. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. amen.